Hello, and thank you for joining us today. I'm Ian Hamilton, and I'm recording this in virtual reality, joined by my co-host sitting with me today in this studio. He's physically an ocean away from me, and we've never met in the real world, but we're wearing Quest 2 headsets to come together into this space that he built so we can discuss the latest VR news. We can see comments from people who are watching our live recording, which broadcast to the Upload VR YouTube channel on Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific. And we're expressing ourselves using some of the latest consumer-facing technologies, including hand tracking and meta avatars. David Heaney, what do we have today? So we're going to talk about the manual for the VR Airlink wireless dongle for Quest 2 leaking. We're going to talk about Amazon job listings that reference a new-to-world AR consumer product. We're going to talk about VRChat's new avatar dynamic system. And finally, we're going to talk about Meta opening its first physical store, as well as killing the Oculus.com store and replacing it with an online Meta store. So we've got all those things to talk about today. Yeah, let's get right into that first subject with the VR AirBridge wireless dongle manual leaking onto the internet. Heaney, what were you able to sort of find in this manual and what does it confirm from our earlier reporting? Yeah, so this manual leaked onto a website called Manuals Plus. We don't know how it got there, but earlier in the month, we had already heard about this product existing because a software engineer had found references to it in the Oculus PC apps code. So the idea here is, and I'll just bring up the image directly from the manual, is that whereas the current Airlink feature operates over your home Wi-Fi network, so you know it goes through your router that's also serving all of your other wireless devices in your home, this would plug in via USB to your computer and have a little cradle that sits on your desk and then have a dedicated wireless connection between your PC and your Quest headset. And the reason that you would want to do that is so that you don't have to have the distance involved if your router is, say, you know, two or three or four rooms away from where you play VR so that you're not fighting the other wireless devices on the network. Your router will sometimes have so much to do that it won't prioritize your headset enough to keep a very low latency and consistent connection that's needed for VR. And also just in case your router is maybe low spec or you know provided by your internet service provider, or maybe your PC isn't actually connected via Ethernet to your router. Maybe it's also wireless, so you're actually having two wireless hops there, which would make something like Airlink unusable. So the manual for this product is leaked. We haven't really learned anything particularly new from the manual that we didn't already know from the code leak, other than that it does seem to come with this little cradle. So if your PC is you know, down the back of your desk, you can actually make sure that the transmitter here, the, the, the wireless dongle, is directly in view of your headset for the best possible wireless connection. Yeah, I'm seeing Opsar asking the question, isn't this just a Wi-Fi dongle with a different firmware? And that is kind of our expectation based on the comments that I think John Carmack, the consulting CTO to Oculus, has made in the past, right, Heaney? Yeah, from what we understand here, this is exactly that. It is a Wi-Fi dongle that's made by D-Link based on one of their existing dongles, but where the firmware and software and drivers are handled by Meta. So instead of having to somehow create some sort of Wi-Fi hotspot, this thing potentially and ideally will just directly connect to your Quest with no kind of setup or manual uh, difficulties required. And as you mentioned, before Airlink even shipped, 
John Carmack had remarked that we may yet in the future make some extra Wi-Fi dongle or have some partnership with different firmware flashes for something that can get us somewhat better performance in congested conditions. So that sounds like this, the firmware on this device will be specifically designed for low latency wireless VR streaming to a headset rather than just standard Wi-Fi hardware with standard Wi-Fi firmware. Yeah, we were talking on Twitter about the length of the USB cord here shown in their documentation where it could actually be longer than what's actually shown here. And I was obviously asking the question of whether it could be extended because that would also affect where in the house you would use your PC or leave it, especially if you've got a desktop. I know there's plenty of situations where I've tried to hide my desktop uh, as many places as I can just to have VR in the maximum possible space, I could see doing the same thing with this accessory. Well, seemingly this is just a Wi-Fi extender that has a kind of cradle end rather than just a standard sort of connector end. So theoretically, as long as you have a compatible USB 3.0 extender, you should be able to extend this out to a different room. Of course, people who used to use the original Oculus Rift with its USB 3.0 sensors will know that actually getting a cable and extenders kind of setup that will run properly with full USB 3.0 bandwidth is a lot harder than it sounds. So you'll have to potentially use, you know, powered repeaters or search around to get the right extender. But I'm sure if this does ship as a product, people will figure that out eventually. So you will be able to have a wireless setup in the other room, provided you spend the money on the exact right extension cables. We have the creator of Virtual Desktop, Guy Godin, in our comments here saying, quote, it appears to only work with AirLink also and won't be usable with third-party apps from the manual. To be honest, at $70 plus, it looks like overpriced junk. That's Aki Godin speaking in our comments here as we're recording the show. Heaney, did you uh, catch that bit of takeaway from the manual? That it won't be usable with third-party apps. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the manual indicates that this will run directly through the Quest software. So instead of installing a driver from D-Link, this is not a generic Wi-Fi adapter by all indications. As we mentioned there, this connects a creates a dedicated connection to your Quest for AirBridge, I guess maybe they'll still call it AirLink, or maybe this will be called its own thing, AirBridge, since it's not going through your home Wi-Fi network. That does mean that if you want to use virtual desktop or you want to use ALVR or one of the other AirLink alternatives, this is not something for you. And, you know, I see Guy Godin also saying there you'd be better off buying a dedicated router. Um, yeah, sure, you could also do that. But I think this is less for people who are interested in their own kind of home networking setup and in more casual users that just want to plug something in via USB and have that be it. And also, this gives you the advantage of portability. If you want to bring your laptop somewhere else, if you're someone who travels often or someone who moves between cities, and a router is an extra thing to put in a bag, whereas this is just a little dongle you can keep and bring around with your laptop no matter where you are. I, I don't think that, I think that the type of user who's going to get this kind of very optimized home network setup with Ethernet cables going from their router to an access point and, you know, directly then to their PC is a very different type of user to the person who would want to buy this and just quickly jump into wireless PC VR. I don't think these things directly compete as much as Guy may be insinuating. I think his audience are probably a lot more technically minded and likely already have a suitable Wi-Fi setup, whereas this is for people who don't have a suitable Wi-Fi setup or can't get one because of how they live. Yeah, and I'm seeing Bicycle asking this fundamental question of whether there needs to be an additional dongle that plugs into the Quest. And that is not the way we expect this to work, right? This is just a device that you plug into your PC end of the connection, and then the Quest connects to that, right? Yeah, correct. By all indications, the Quest already has a 
you know, it has a Wi-Fi antenna in it. This is not a customized algorithm or kind of a customized, sorry, protocol. This is just Wi-Fi 6 running through USB 3. So it does open an interesting question of how does the Quest headset still have a Wi-Fi connection, but it wouldn't need to if it's running through your PC because the apps are running on your PC. So yeah, there's, there's no indication that this will be anything added to the Quest. This will simply be as a replacement for going through your home network to get that Wi-Fi signal to your Quest. I wonder, it's interesting to think about sort of if there was ever a possibility that someone like Yegoden could do this himself as an accessory for virtual desktop, and then what sort of benefits the end user would see out of that. If he actually programmed virtual desktop firmware for a similar device, would we get some kind of gains out of the virtual desktop experience if this was done as like a third-party solution? It's uh, an interesting question. I think, you know, as far as I'm aware, you'd have to ask E that, but, uh, you know, I think he's an excellent software engineer. That's clear, but the firmware engineering is quite a different skill set, and the people who work on this are not kind of the same as the people who would work on the actual Airlink end software. So I imagine while that's technically possible, maybe there are kind of Wi-Fi dongles that you could write custom firmware for. I'm not sure that's something Guy wants to do, but we'll have to wait for Guy to respond himself. That's, I, I don't know. Yeah, I see it right at the bottom there is a comment that he doesn't want to get into the hardware business. And that's a perfectly, yeah, it's a whole nother realm of complications to your work if you really want to go to that layer, right, Heaney? Yeah, and I think there's a massive difference between a huge corporation like Meta partnering with D-Link to release this as a product with custom firmware versus a sole developer. You know, Guy has done amazing things as a sole developer, but you, as a sole developer, you cannot make those kind of partnerships with a company like D-Link. It's just not practical. Fantas is asking, will it use multiband Wi-Fi 2.4 and 5 gigahertz? No, by all indications, this is using 5 gigahertz, which is what you would want to use for a kind of close range, high bandwidth connection. You want to make full use of the available bandwidth and there's no need for 2.4 gigahertz if you are in the same room and there are no kind of obstacles in the way. Onakazi um, saying that this is more for people who see anything to do with routers or networking as black magic. Yeah, I can kind of see that as being Yeah, which is most people. Marketed. Yep. You know, I have, I have a virtual desktop setup where I have a, a Ethernet cable going from my router to a Wi-Fi 6 access point in my play space that is then also wired by Ethernet to my PC. But I can fully acknowledge that most people don't want to do something like that. They just want a simple solution like this. Yep. All right, so Amazon is working on a, quote, new-to-world AR VR product. So there have been Amazon job listings spotted referencing a new-to-world consumer product. What do we think Amazon could be working on, Heaney? Yeah, so as I mentioned in the article about this, Amazon is the only kind of major tech giant that doesn't have an announced or heavily rumored AR VR product at the moment. You know, Meta has its Quest headsets and its its announced AR glasses. Apple is rumored to be working on a mixed reality headset to come out either late this year or early next year. The Verge has reported that Google is working on a mixed reality headset to come out in 2024. Microsoft has its HoloLens systems. But Amazon is kind of conspicuously absent for now, and that's what makes these job listings so interesting. So yes, it has its Echo Frames, which are just glass smart glasses that allow you to talk to Alexa and play music and take calls. They're kind of like the Ray-Ban Stories 
but without the camera. But there's no AR VR product yet. And so this these job listings, one of them mentions you will develop an advanced XR research concept into a magical and useful new-to-world consumer product. Another one mentions developing code for early prototypes through mass production. So it sounds like this is something that's going to be a mass product. And another one of these job listings describes the core system interface along with end-user applications spanning from multimodal interfaces to 3D AR entertainment experiences. And these job listings were spotted by Protocol and the uh, journalism outlet, and they were very quickly taken down after Protocol's article ran. So this is clearly something Amazon did not really intend to be picked up on, which you know just leads more credence to this being a real project. And, and finally, the final hint we're seeing here is that in March, they hired Karis O'Connell to lead a future design group, which is described as helping Amazon experience what it's like to live in the future today. And O'Connell once worked for the defunct company MetaView, not Meta, the current Meta, but MetaView, who were around a few years ago as an AR headset company. And then more recently, the last thing they worked on was at Google, they worked on Google's upcoming rumored AR operating system. So this is someone who has experience in working with AR headsets, both on the hardware and the software side. They're now working in Amazon's future design group. And as long as, as well as that, Amazon has posted all of these listings talking about an AR consumer product. So Amazon is working on something, but we don't know what it actually is. Now, of course, I, I've had people send me the Echo Frames, screenshots of the Echo Frames that are over there at Amazon, and I've had to point out to people, no, those aren't the same as the Ray-Ban Stories camera glasses. Those are an audio-based, music-only experience, mostly with, with Alexa tacked on, right, Heaney? Yeah, they are just, it's just another one of these smart glasses, audio glasses, whatever you want to call them. But I mean, I imagine that Echo Frames over time will evolve into AR glasses. It would make it, it makes sense if other companies get to the point where they're able to ship AR glasses. I don't see why Amazon wouldn't want to, given its kind of interest in being first into these new markets. We saw with Alexa that happened. We saw with other things in the smart home, and wearables seems like a natural fit. And I think they also have their own earbuds now, but. From what I understand, based on the fact that this seems to be more near term, and given that hire that worked on MetaView, this is probably more of a, an in-home AR experience. That's just my kind of gut instinct here, rather than out in the world AR glasses. Something more similar to Hololens or Cambria than something like public AR glasses. What about something like a Lumi Room? You know, Microsoft had that project with a projector, and it was like projection-based mapping to project into your room, an immersive experience that could extend beyond your screen. Is there any feasibility in that idea at all, Heaney? Because I, I kind of was hope, holding out hope that we might see a, a really broad consumer product like that, but I, I haven't really seen anyone find success. I know there have been a few startups working in that area. But is there any possibility that this is what Amazon is, is working on? So some people pointed out that a decade ago, Amazon did file some patents for the idea of having you know a, a glasses-free system where you have projected holograms in your room. But unless we're talking about 2D holograms, which just don't really have any kind of real practicality in terms of making a real immersive experience that competes with AR, there just doesn't seem to be any technology on the horizon that makes that possible. 
it, it it's always possible that you know one of these companies like Amazon has come up with some sort of moonshot and figured out some completely brand new technology that no one's ever thought about before. But given you know just how many companies and research facilities and universities work on optics and holography and all of these kind of technologies, that seems fairly unlikely. I suspect that given that they're working with the same laws of physics as everyone else, this is going to be some sort of headset-based system. People might not be familiar with what a Luma Room was, where it was basically a connect and a projector hooked up together. And the connect would scan the physical geometry of the room, and then the projector would match the visuals onto that surface. And you could get an immersive, expanded field of view for your gaming experience beyond the TV. And you could basically frame it with your whole living room sort of projection mapped in that way. And it was a really cool experience that I think I saw at Seagraph many, many years ago. But it was one of those ideas that it was so cool to see concepted out. But the gap between that concept and actually making a consumer reality is a very large one. And to your point, Heaney, I mean, like there's been so much work to consumerize headsets at this point. It really makes sense that it would be some kind of Amazon take on, you know, the Amazon basics version of a VR or AR headset at this point. Yeah, the other problem with projectors in general is that the cost just doesn't really work well. You'll notice that, you know, if you're ever in the market for a television and you say and you look into, well, what if I got a projector instead? You'll notice that to get anywhere near the same quality and brightness as an equivalent TV, you have to kind of multiply the price many times in a projector. And that's why, you know, there's been promising projector products on the horizon for a long time. The idea of just having this small little device that you can have a television anywhere, almost in the same kind of way that AR glasses promise giving you an arbitrary television anywhere. But just the sheer amount of kind of brightness and energy needed to project out a screen that can actually work in anything but dark time at nighttime means that you end up with a product that is just far too expensive to be practical for the mass market. And that's why projectors are still not going to take off. It costs a lot less, even though it still costs a lot to project into one eye than one or two of your eyes than to project onto an entire wall. Mm, Very interesting points there about the differences there. And I've gone, I went through this this year, basically with a very cheap projector that I set up. And it's amazing to have all of a sudden like a 140 inch or 120 inch screen on your wall. But then you're realizing that you can't see any of the details in any of the dark scenes. You've got to make the house absolutely dark, pitch black in order to enjoy that experience. But it actually makes so much sense to have a projector set up with a VR experience because you don't have to have any furniture necessarily to have the projector just beam at a wall or a screen on the wall. And you could reclaim all of that floor space for your VR experience. So projectors and VR actually make a lot of sense. And I don't know, I guess we'll come back to this a little bit when we talk about our last subject in the news today. Any comments there that we should respond to? Yeah, just Andrew King saying that they have a dedicated media room with a great 4K projector at a large screen. And yeah, that I mean, if you have a media room where you can block out the light, it is great. And Sexy Sexy Bicycle saying they're expensive and hot. Yep, again, because you have to just, to really make it work, the even tiny amounts of brightness increase means you have to dramatically increase the brightness of the projector, which obviously brings up the power draw, which brings up the heat. And you're just fighting the laws of physics. The sun is much, much brighter than any display technology we have today. So if you're trying to beat it, you're kind of, unless you're only doing it over an extremely short distance, like from the glasses to the to your eye, for example, you're fighting a losing battle. 
All right, moving on to this next subject, VR Chat Avatar Dynamics. This is a new avatar interaction system that is rolled out to developers from VR Chat. I think it's very interesting to talk about this at kind of a meta level, the the largest level of how this fits into the platform wars, because we are just sort of within the last few months seeing that Altspace over there at Microsoft and Horizon Worlds over at Meta have instituted safety bubbles across the board. Safety bubbles have been there for years and years and years in virtual spaces, but it's taken us until this year to make it kind of the default experience across at least those two virtual worlds. VRChat has had the safety bubble features there for years, and what I see this as kind of the opposite end of the safety bubble, that their how-to-use-this instruction page over on VRChat has very detailed instructions on how you can go into the menu system and turn these advanced interactions on, on basically a per-user basis, right, Heaney? Do you want to get into details on what this is and how this functions for developers? Yeah, so it's a replacement for the existing dynamic bone system. So, well, part of it is that this new Fizz Bones, Fizz Bones, Physics Bones, replaces dynamic bones. And it's essentially a much, much, much more performant version of what there was before. So it allows for avatars that have all of these dynamic physics interactions that you see here. And very importantly, they, it's so performant now that it can actually run on Quest. So there's one of the big issues with VR chat that people don't really talk about enough when they're talking about it to audiences that aren't really familiar with it is it is sort of really two applications in one. There is the PC version of VR chat where you get all of these incredibly detailed worlds that rival even native games. And you get these avatars that are unbelievably detailed and interactive. And then there's the quest version where you only have certain quest worlds and only certain quest avatars. And if someone who's a PC user doesn't have a quest avatar, you just see this little default kind of blank puppet when they walk around. So this is one of an, a first example of VR chat being able to bring these advanced interactions to quest as well as improving them for all users on PC. And some of the things here are really just incredible and things we haven't really seen in any other multiplayer title because Obviously, there are advanced interactions in single-player experiences like Boneworks, like The Walking Dead, Saints and Sinners. But when it comes to multiplayer in VR, a lot of the time, there's nothing of the sort. And you and the other users are essentially in your own kind of local physics universe with no direct interaction. So as you can see kind of on the video, you can, users are able to create physics-based bone and skeleton structures on these avatars now. They're able to have user-defined colliders and tags and really the the possibilities here in terms of what people can make are fairly endless and as you say from a safety perspective there are really quite detailed privacy and sort of safety settings here where you can define for different types of user groups who can touch which parts of your avatar you can even do it per user and above your name tag you can actually have that displayed so that people know before they kind of come over whether they are able to touch and interact with what you've created. And sort of that gives it gives the control to the users in that sense. Yeah, I saw a comment here that I thought was interesting about sort of the culture of VR chat. Something to the effect of you only that the safety bubble is only there 
for as long as you learn how to turn it off for most VR chat users. And I imagine that is uh, probably the case for many of the people who are sort of drawn to the social network. I noticed one of the interactions here, tapping their own hat to turn into like a magician and change their whole outfit. And I remember seeing that kind of interaction in Neos. And that was one of the things that looked really cool about that particular shared social world. And it's interesting to see this happen in VR chat now, where it seems like that's uniquely a really cool thing you can do when you can perform some kind of pre-planned gesture and then become a completely new avatar or change it to some other form of that avatar. Yeah, both VR chat and Neos have a very, very advanced scripting system that allows for all sorts of possibilities. And in many ways, those two platforms are more a metaverse than anything else we've seen yet. Obviously, Neos has the one issue of being kind of PC focused, where VR chat is at least semi on Quest, though, you know, as I point out, still a lot of the worlds and avatars aren't available to Quest users. And even some of the Quest worlds and Quest avatars are going to bring your device down to you know 40 frames per second at times. So this still is a, a PC-first metaverse. This still is a PC-first space. But with this performance improvement that we're seeing with the new dynamic bones over fizz bones, you can see how over time they're trying to make a lot of what makes this so interesting and engaging to their users available to the swarm of Quest users rather than just the kind of smaller niche of PC power users. The context I want to put this in, I guess, is that the very broad platform wars. And I noticed we've got Twitter. Elon Musk has just bought Twitter this week. And there's this comment in his announcement that he's buying Twitter that Twitter is going to authenticate all humans. Then over at Meta and Facebook, we have this very different situation where they have for years and years now required that if you set up a Facebook account, you use your real identity and your real name. And obviously, as they switch over to Meta, we don't really have a good picture of how their new account system is going to operate with that legacy requirement that it be attached to a real identity. And then this is all feeding into VR and AR, where you've got glasses that maybe walk around with you in the real world, how much do they you know, track who you are? How much do they follow your real-world identity? Do you have the ability to kind of turn off that identity at will and use a different identity? And I think it's really interesting to think about the different approaches here as they, they go into the future, right? Twitter, it's hard to think of them as a VR company, but they did have like a 360 video effort there for a little while at Twitter, before they canned Twitter's VR efforts. And as we move into the future, we've got TikTok, Twitter, Facebook. It will be really interesting to see whether there's a resurgence of VR efforts over at Twitter and how we take our identity into these virtual spaces. And VR chat, when I look at it and all the features that they add, so far I've heard from developers who have benefited from Facebook's policy where if you have a troll in your shared virtual world, you can permaban them using Facebook's account system as a way of getting that troll out. If they uh, are really offensive, you could theoretically uh, report that to Facebook and theoretically have that account 
remove from your social network. I've heard from various social networks out there that that's actually a really beneficial feature, but that might not always be the case if these devices aren't always backed by your Facebook account. So I don't know, where do you see VRChat going in two to three years, Heaney? Because it's very interesting you bring up this PC first mentality, like how big can they get with that mentality? Yeah, I think obviously as standalone headsets become more and more popular and even more of the market over time, a trend that I don't really expect to somehow magically reverse for any particular reason, VRChat is going to struggle to keep up with platforms that do developed for standalone first. And as I was saying, I think this is obviously one of those important steps to making these advanced features more accessible to standalone. But it's going to have to find a way to to bridge those worlds and avatars that when you're actually looking at VR chat being promoted over YouTube or Twitter or Facebook, 99% of the time you're seeing a world that simply doesn't run on Quest. It literally is a PC-only world and you're seeing PC-only avatars. And then that's being contrasted and compared to something like Horizon or Rec Room But Horizon and Rec Room, everything runs on standalone. So that's not really a fair comparison. So VRChat's going to have to struggle to solve that problem if it's going to want to be one of the bigger platforms over time. Right now, obviously, it is the bigger platform, but we're still in an era where many VR users are these kind of very technical people who are involved in having their own custom PC that can run these kind of things. As the market goes into more and more sort of normal people, more people who aren't directly interested in technology, but use it as a tool rather than as a kind of thing in itself. It's going to be interesting to see how VR chat does evolve or whether it decides to double down on this niche because, you know, the kind of internet culture that we're seeing in this video and the kind of people that use VR chat, that's not really the average internet user or the average tech user. And this, to a lot of people, this sort of thing is going to be somewhat off-putting, not appealing in the same way at least somewhat off-putting yeah yeah at least at least that's saying the very least you know a lot of people always i see a lot of comments from vr power users you're saying oh this looks a thousand times more appealing than something like horizon or rec room and like yes to you but to the average person they would look at horizon rec room and find that a lot more appealing than this for the obvious unspoken reasons so vr chat's going to really struggle to decide over time i think Does it double down on this kind of niche internet culture power user that likes to look like this and dress up like this and use these kind of interactions? Or does it want to become a more broad and general metaverse platform that is targeting the potentially millions and tens of millions of people that are going to get a headset in the next five to 10 years? That's an open question for its developers, for its community. And really, we'll have to just watch and see what it decides to do. There's an issue here with VR chat that is going to be really interesting to watch what happens over on Horizon Worlds in the next year. And that's the fact that over on Horizon Worlds, not only is that social network restricted to a few countries, uh, including the United States, they're also restricting that user base strictly to being those older than 18 as well, right, Heaney? And I'll be curious if they change that guideline and whether they're going to enforce that guideline with the Facebook-backed identity stack that they have. Because that is a differentiating feature there between Horizon Worlds and what they're doing. And what Rec Room and VR Chat kind of have a lot of unsupervised youth floating around those spaces. How is Horizon going to handle that? 
And I'm seeing it in our comments where people are confused about whether this feature is meant for kids or whether it's meant for adults. And I think that's one of the things that is really problematic about VR chat's kind of messaging to the world is it is unclear what audience they're targeting their service toward. Do you have any thoughts on that, Heaney? Well, I just point out that Horizon in theory is for people over 13, but I haven't used it yet, obviously, because I'm not in the US and Canada. But the people I've spoken to that use Horizon say it's just as filled with children as Rec Room. It, it, it doesn't come down to whether a platform says it's for children or not. It comes down to, will they actually have moderators who will actually ban children? And right now, the answer for Horizon Worlds from everyone I've spoken to is no, they will not actually ban children. So for now, Horizon is just as full of children as any other platform. Over time, if they keep that Facebook account backing and they ban kind of users who are using it or letting the children use it, then sure, it can become a platform without children. But Rec Room, in theory, does that as well. They have their junior account system. It comes down to what I've spoken about before is in that if a company wants to run these social VR platforms, there is a required moderation investment for the public open spaces, the, the kind of town square equivalents. And I want to be clear, just like I am every time, I'm not talking about private spaces. I'm not talking about some of these companies kind of interfering in your conversations. I'm just talking about if you're in the default area that people load into, if you're in a campfire town square, then you need some moderation so that when children put on this headset and go straight into these worlds, they can be banned and that the parents are going to have to be required to do some supervision. Obviously, we know that in the coming months, Meta plans to add parental controls to Quest so that parents will be able to block their children out of using things like Rec Room and VR Chat and Horizon. And that should help across the board without any of these platforms having to take their own actions. But for now, that doesn't seem to be a problem unique to VR Chat, though obviously, given a, a lot of the activity that goes on in VR Chat because of this advanced functionality and because of the kind of niche internet culture user base that it has. There is obviously a specific issue with children engaging in this that don't kind of realize the kind of complicated issue that while a lot of this may look like it is for children, it's actually very much so for adults in many cases yeah. in the terms of what's actually going on. We see this in the reporting about VR chat and all these social networks that that kind of misses this. And I, and I guess I'll just... I'll say it once here for the record that there is nowhere uh, that I can think of on the internet where... Adult supervision is more important than when your kid enters a social space in virtual reality. That's for the kid's safety as well as just making sure that uh, they're uh, contributing to the social interaction in a positive way, right? Like rec room suddenly becomes not a fun place to be in when everyone in the main lobby is screaming their heads off. And a parent supervising that can make that not happen. You, you described it really well there, Heaney, and I'm seeing in our comments. What I wanted to point out there on the horizon comparison is that it's there's a, a very large gap between 13 and 18 where, yes, VR headsets are technically you know, advised. You use them only if you're 13 plus. We know that there are a lot of people out there who are under 13 using VR headsets. But strictly, Horizon Worlds is supposed to be for 18-plus adults. And there are certain things that if you're able to verify that everyone in your space is an adult, you can have a service that caters to that audience. I'm getting emails on dating services emerging, and they're trying to do various dating services 
with VR headsets. And there is a really interesting idea there that if you're two consenting adults meeting in space with avatars that exemplify all of your fandoms, you could have an interesting interaction as you eventually decide to take your avatars away and reveal your real identity to the other person. There could be a really interesting social network like that over time, but you really don't want to be mixing that up with all the messaging issues that these networks have right now. You, you really need to separate those audiences in a really careful way, don't you? Yeah, so one, one of the things I think can really help here is when headsets have iris verification. So one of the things that eye tracking makes possible is that in the same way that you unlock your phone today with your fingerprint or your face ID, you can in future imagine that headsets will use your iris just like the Magic Leap 1 already does and just like the HoloLens 2 already does. So what you can do today is that if it's bound to a Facebook account, you can verify that the owner of a Quest 2 is 18. But the problem isn't that kids are somehow bypassing this. The problem is that a parent who is over 18 lets their child use their headset, which is bound to the parent, and then the child jumps on these experiences on their parent's account. But if you're able to do an iris verification upon launching apps that are supposed to be for 18 plus, so you put the headset on and it checks that your iris matches the user Cyrus just as you launch this app, then your child wouldn't be able to get on there. So there is, you know, people... Some people hate the idea of a technological solution for societal problems like this, but there is really a viable technological solution to the societal problem here. Mm -hmm. And I'd be really interested to see whether that is how it pans out when headsets do get iris verification. Mm, really interesting. All right, we're ready to move on to the last subject here? Yep, I think we can move on to Meta Stores. Yeah, so Meta is opening its first physical store to sell quests, portals, and glasses. So Meta is opening its first store in California where you can check out Quest 2 and take home a 30-second mixed reality clip. This experience was teased by Mark Zuckerberg last week before actually coming out and debuting the store. And we saw this large video wall here. And I'm assuming there's a camera looking overhead that can provide a live mixed reality view into the store for everyone who is with you. And then you can have a short VR experience where you get in there and try Golf Plus or Beat Saber and actually get that hands-on experience with VR. Going back almost half a decade now, I remember going to the Vive buses that they drove around to various places around the world and you could schedule on a website a very specific demo to go try room scale vr and like take home a t-shirt from your demo it's really cool to see this kind of demo reach this level of slick but this is going to introduce a lot of people to vr isn't it heeny yeah i mean it depends on how they want to scale this this is obviously one store for now but the open question is is this going to be a key part of Meta's strategy in the long term? Are they going to try and replicate what Apple did with the iPod and start launching stores all over the world in major cities? Or is this just going to be a very small scale thing? And I actually suspect that it will be a lot larger scale. You know, I've seen some of the comments around this, people saying, oh, and if in a few months you'll hear that this is shut down and this was just a one-time experiment. But the reason I think this could be huge is that wearable products like VR headsets and AR glasses are, are just perfect for a physical 
retail strategy because these are devices that you really can't understand without actually going and trying. A lot of people have the idea that they maybe are interested in VR, but they they need to actually try it to decide whether they want it. And also just from like a fitting perspective, when you have different straps, when you have glasses that are of different sizes, when you want to see whether something is actually comfortable in your head, the only way to do that is to go and actually try it in person like this. So I do think that this is going to be a huge potential part of Meta's strategy. I do think that they could even extend this in the future to things like service and repairs. So you have, you know, a broken lens. You can just go straight into the Meta store in the same way you have the Apple store, because that is a huge part of why a lot of people are very interested in the Apple ecosystem and why they stick with it. Because if they go with some other random Android phone provider, you break it or something goes wrong with it. You have to kind of send it away in a box and find where you have to put it and get in contact. Whereas if you live in a city with an Apple store, you just walk straight in, hand it over and say, here's what's wrong on my device. Tell me how, how long and how much is it going to cost to fix? So as well as the unique advantages of selling wearable products in, in person, they have this potential advantage in the long term of making it part of a repair and service situation that keeps people kind of connected to the meta brand rather than going for the upcoming alternatives. Yeah, I know as Tesla was rolling out its store strategy, it's such an interesting product because that's thirty to seventy or a hundred thousand dollar product, but you can't really understand why you would want to buy an electric vehicle until you feel the acceleration that's possible out of that car. And the moment you feel that acceleration, you go, Oh, oh, oh that's that's why. And it's interesting to think that it's kind of taken Meta this long in certain respects to realize that for a $300 product, you still need to have that experience to convince a lot of people this is going to have a home. Like right now, we still know that we have this situation, Heaney, where a lot of headsets go and end up in closets after they're used a few times or even just once. They just don't get used again. There's nobody in their social circle to go uh, try out VR with them. Maybe they didn't try out the game that they wanted. There's nothing that really fits with them. This, I think, if you go into a store and try out a Quest and you really enjoyed your experience and then are motivated to buy a Quest right after that, I think there's a far, far likelier situation where you're going to go and reuse that headset again and again and again. Yeah, for sure. And I mean... We're still at the point where a lot of VR users don't realize this, but most people still have not tried real virtual reality. Many people may have tried, you know, a few years ago, one of those Google Cardboard experiences or kind of one of those phone holders. But the majority of people still have not tried a VR experience where you have positional tracking, you're standing up and you have two track controllers. So I'm sure anyone who has a headset that demos it to other people will know that VR is really a, a kind of conversion on contact technology. It's almost a, a religious experience in the sense that you can tell someone all about a VR headset and they can kind of understand what you're saying. But then when they actually put it on and use it and really see what it is, it completely changes their view of what the technology is. And this is something that was understood by Oculus in the early days. They would make sure to go to all of the trade conferences, to GDC, to E3, to PAX, to all of these different events. And that's really how they originally spread the word about VR. VR didn't actually, people talk about the VR hype cycle that started, but it wasn't because of people talking about VR. It was because Oculus and you know, Sony with Project Morpheus and, and HTC involved with the Vive took these 
pieces of hardware to all of these shows, spread them around to as many people as possible and just put it on their head and said, look at this, look at this, look what this could be in five or 10 years. And that's where that hype cycle of VR came around, which is very different to a lot of other hype cycles in technology where the empty promises of a technology that no one's actually used are driving the hype. So if they can do this, this time with a product that people can actually buy for $300, not something that's coming in future, not something that requires a $2,000 PC and the $600 purchase and you know $200 controllers and then extra sensors, but just something you can buy off the shelf and walk away. It is a potential to be maybe even one of the main drivers of VR sales compared to people who haven't tried it. And it's it, it'll be really interesting to see how quickly do they scale this idea and what kind of success does it see? I guess if you're setting up the appointment, you kind of know what you're getting into if you pick one of these experiences. But lots of times, people just want to realize they can walk around in a small circle for the first time. And, I don't know, Beat Saber slicing at boxes flying at your head can actually be kind of intense if you're just getting used to the idea that you've got your hands and physical body to be able to move around in VR. So I, I hope they even have like an easier, something like BOGO to introduce people to VR as well. Yeah, I always go for first steps. The tutorial experience, I think it's pretty good because it teaches you how to use the controllers and it gives you kind of direct hand interaction with objects that are near you. First steps really plays to the advantages of VR and that's why it's used as the tutorial and introductory experience to Quest. So, you know, I would always recommend if you're demoing VR to someone who's non-technical, especially you're going to want to do that. I'm just seeing a few people in the comments saying that they too have experienced this where they put VR on the head of someone, especially a non-technical person, and they're just blown away by it because a lot of times people will come before the experience and kind of say, I'm not quite sure about this. And they're definitely skeptical. And you can see that they think it's just going to be like a video game, but a little bit different. And then they put it on. They're like, you know, I've maybe demoed virtual reality to 200 or 300 people at this stage. And the experience most of the time is just, wow, I didn't think that this was even possible yet. I didn't even think that this technology existed. So if they can bring that to people en masse and then sell it to them, it could be a winning strategy. And also I would expect, you know, Apple already has this store infrastructure itself. So I'm sure Apple, when its headset releases, its, its rumored headset, I should say, releases, will be able to use this exact same strategy to sell it. And we may see that that is, for Apple, one of the main sales channels, just as it could be for Meta if they expand this idea. Yeah, I always think about this stuff on the span of 20, 30 years, right? Are, are malls going to exist in 20 years, and as well as movie theaters, right? The two anchors of what a lot of these malls are about. I always think of these stores as like, when you're talking about glasses and headsets, those are replacements for a lot of physical environments. And I always, we've talked about this like Heaney of like a paintball game that could take place over an entire mall scape. And I, I, I don't know. I wonder if we're ever going to see that or if we're going to have physical malls two decades out. It's just, I don't know. If that's two decades away, in 10 years' time, are we going to go to the Meta Store for our fitting of our next? glasses from them and get the exactly something that's fitted exactly for our face and our prescription and we'll go down to the meta store one of i guess hundreds of them probably that'll be worldwide is that where this is going or are we going to have them them airdropped to us as i joked about on another show i really think we will end up going to the physical store for the reasons you mentioned for the physical fit aspect because obviously over the internet and through the metaverse you can 
read about these things. You can get a 3D model in front of you that looks like the headset, but you can't simulate a better headset with your current headset. You can simulate worse headsets. There's, you know, I remember Palmer Lucky floated the idea of having a virtual museum of VR headsets where you can put on an old headset and your field of view will lower to what it was and the resolution will look like it did and any of the kind of issues that existed in it will be simulated. But you can't simulate a better headset than what you're wearing. So if you want to actually see what are the new improvements in the new headset, if you've never tried a headset, if you want to actually see whether glasses will fit you, if you've never tried AR glasses, you have to go in person. And obviously, it still comes down to what I was saying before, the servicing and repair part. These things are always going to break. And yes, you can have a very convenient service where, you know, I don't know, in the future, an autonomous van shows up to your house and you just put your headset in the slot and then a week later it comes back. But there's still going to be, for people who live in cities, it's still just going to be more convenient in many ways to walk in and have this thing fixed in front of you and have an actual person look at it and take it across and to set up all this kind of servicing repair. So I, I am bullish on the idea of physical stores for headsets and glasses. And I don't think it's going to be something that goes away until the only caveat I would add there is maybe when we get to the time when everyone has at least tried or owns a headset or AR glasses, then maybe you get to the point where everyone kind of understands what the new specs mean and what the new features could be. And you don't need to get there. But I would point out that as far as I'm aware, a significant percentage of smartphones today are still sold through carrier stores in places like the United States and through physical stores in other countries where people walk in and hold the phone in their hand and kind of try it out first and then walk away with it. So if it's even more suitable for headsets, I don't see how it would somehow not be a thing there. It's interesting to think about the size of department stores, right? With the amount of clothing racks that are throughout an entire department store. And here we have these tech stores that are actually really small, but you're actually buying clothing essentially inside of them. And uh, yeah, I'd be curious if to see, like maybe over time, these stores will get bigger uh, as the styles sort of expand. Because yeah, in our comments, people mentioning that you really need to even try the Apple Watch on and get a sense of the styles and the different sizes for the Apple Watch. And it's only going to get more personal as you really want to get a headset that's fitted for you and is going to be worn with you, you know, as the most visible part of your day, right? You're walking through everywhere. Everyone's going to be looking at your glasses. They might not look at your watch so often. Glasses are something that are always going to need to be fitted to the individual user anyway. So, you know, if, if glasses are getting smart functionality and becoming AR or becoming heads-up displays, as we were talking about last week with Meta's plans for both kind of glasses. There's just no real way to do that scalably without having a physical retail presence like this. And obviously they're going to have that Ray-Ban partnership, but they're going to want to have their own AR glasses too. I've been trying to think of what the Ray-Ban sunglasses represent as a test to Meta, right? They're priced to kind of the same price as a Quest 2. So they're both $300 pairs of eyewear. At least they start there and then you can get added features. And that to me represents kind of a a really interesting test to Meta where they're going to have, let's say, 100 people come into their stores. Even though the Quest is probably the superior experience, at least to me as a gamer, right? I, I love the Quest and everything. I'm curious if they'll sell more glasses via the website then they will quests walking out the front door with that experience because of the, the wildly varying reasons you would want 
those devices. But afterwards, Meta is going to learn very interesting information that's going to be useful as they establish the market opportunity for themselves in all-day wearable AR down the line. The other thing I was thinking about here, Heaney, is the Ray-Ban glasses compare to me in my head to the Gear VR stage of VR. So Gear VR, you couldn't lean around in VR. You had the simplest of controllers, and it overheated really fast. And it was a partnership between Facebook and Samsung to put a product on the market that is now defunct across every possible way it can be defunct, right? Like Oculus Go, they actually released an operating system so that people could mess with that system decades from now, whereas Gear VR is just kind of lost to history. I kind of see Ray-Ban stories being similar from an AR perspective, that at some point they're going to move more of this experience of buying AR glasses inside the Meta store. They're going to use the Meta branding for the device, and it will have more features. But I, I guess I'm thinking about the timelines there, Heaney. We had the Gear VR at the end of 2014, and it was like an innovator edition device for like almost more than two years, wasn't it, Heaney? Uh, and then it turned into a consumer device for another period of time and then uh, got replaced by Oculus Go around 2018. So like a four-year period for it to go to even a bare minimum consumer product that some people would want to buy, that various people at Facebook said it, you know, it actually had retained users in a far different way than the earlier device. But four years' time between a sort of on the market to it actually becoming something far more compelling, and then another year for it to get to the quest where it's even more compelling. I kind of feel like we're on a similar timeline with the stories being a compelling product, right? Are, are we talking maybe, what, three years from now we'll have uh, a meta-branded thing? Or are those timelines not comparable in any way? Well, as we discussed in the report last week from The Verge, it sounds like these are two diverging product lines where, you know, these aren't AR glasses. I, I disagree that this is the Gear VR of AR because these are not AR glasses. They don't offer any AR functionality. They are just glasses that have a camera and speaker and microphone in them. They are, they're kind of, they're smart glasses. And the report last week from The Verge indicated that Meta intends to keep releasing smart glasses that will, by 2024, that's two years from now, have some sort of heads-up display where you can kind of see your notifications and get a visual indication in front of you. But it's not an augmented reality in the sense that, you know, it's not positionally tracked. You're not seeing three-dimensional objects. You're just seeing a kind of video game-like HUD when you need it in a contextual sense, when you get a message, if you're navigating from A to B and, you know, you get to the next waypoint, things like that, or maybe a pop-up of who's calling you instead of having to read it out loud. And I imagine that's what these Ray-Ban specs are going to evolve into, this kind of low-cost and accessible Ray-Ban-branded HUD smart glasses, whereas from what the report says, there is this separate project to build these really kind of full-fledged AR glasses that will probably be meta-branded and sold in these meta stores, but will potentially be you know, 10 times the cost, something like two or $3,000 compared to something like two or $300. So I don't think that they're going to follow the same trend as what we saw in VR. I think these are going to diverge into completely separate product lines that don't cross over for maybe a decade or two. 
I'm seeing bicycle comment. I've got many friends I would love to bring to a VR store to try things out, but they would never be caught dead in a meta store. That's a, yeah, I get that. But I think there's plenty of people out there also who, as soon as there are one of these in every major city, it kind of becomes the recommendation that you get down there to the store to try it out, to, to really see it for yourself, right? It's like, I don't know, what is it? This, is it the Streisand effect where, uh, you know, like you can tell people not to look at something and it just makes them look at it more? I don't know. If you're really against Meta and Facebook and everything they're doing, what's the harm in actually going down to a Meta store and seeing what it's actually all about? The worst that happens is you walk out of the store more informed about technology and how it's going to change your world than you were before, right, Heaney? Yeah, I, I continue to kind of suspect that the people who are so militantly against Meta that they would not even walk into a store to try it are probably a, a fairly tiny minority in the grand scheme of things. Meta isn't trying to appeal to people who, you know, spend their day reading the New York Times and Wired's technical kind of articles about Meta's content moderation policies or election interfering issues. They're trying to appeal to the average tech consumer, the the billions of people in the world who buy tech products and buy gadgets and most of them really don't care about the specific intricacies of the company that they're coming from so again obviously hopefully we get other companies like i was saying before apple already has that store infrastructure out there so hopefully they're able to provide a hands-on demo experience for people who aren't going to walk into a meta store but i don't think in the grand scheme of things those people are going to really be an issue over time and yeah, there'll be alternatives, I'm sure. I was thinking about trying to pull up my video from Spaces, but it's actually a little too painful for me to go back and look at now. But this was a demo from 2018 from the startup Spaces, and they had a corner location at the Irvine Spectrum Mall where uh, like some of the earliest Apple stores, I think, opened in that area of Orange County. But they had the store where you could go in and try out Terminator Salvation in a multi-user experience. And before the experience, they would do a 3D scan of your face and then project that 3D scan onto the Terminator avatars. And then they built this, they built it into the story that you were actually like a new kind of terminator that was part human and part terminator uh in a kind of a different uh way than other terminators i guess um and then you go inside vr and you can actually see these scanned faces on the other avatars and know who they are since there's no other way to, to actually identify the different players and you could have your standard like 20 minute or so experience fighting off other terminators and doing something with the other players but at the end of the experience, they auto-generated a video for you to take home. And I noticed this was a theme at some of the other VR arcades out there where you can take home clips from your experience inside VR and show it off to other people. And there have been various implementations of this, of like auto-tweeting out to your account uh, this clip of your experience. And there's various ways to try to like learn how to exactly capture the right moment in the clip. I think what I'm seeing in this meta video where it's just over the shoulder beat saber, right? 
is going to be an incredible video almost every time produced for those users. And it's going to introduce a lot of people to the idea that, yeah, you do need to go down to the Meta Store. That's kind of their aim here is to have people go into the store, come out and say, you got to go down there and check it out. And mixed reality of the quality that they're kind of promising to turn out of these stores is really going to do that for a lot of people. Yeah, it's a word of mouth experience, a word of mouth marketing. And just like plenty of non-VR experiences that you do this, you know, you go to Disney World, you go to a lot of theme parks and they take a picture of you at the most sort of scary moment of the ride. And then you're able to purchase it after and, you know, you share that to your friends and that makes them want to kind of go and try it themselves. It's just another one of those kind of marketing experiences, because in many ways, I don't think the main purpose of these stores is really to sell the product directly, but to kind of maybe even just introduce people to the idea of the product and get the idea of VR out there and get people to come in and try it. People who otherwise wouldn't have tried it because they just don't know anyone who owns the product. I guess the last thing we should talk about is the other meta store, the online meta store. The Oculus.com website has been killed or at least it still exists only for the App Store listings and for the Oculus blog. But it has been replaced otherwise by a new meta store, which seems to be kind of a online equivalent of this physical meta store in that it sells the Quest, the Portal video calling appliances, and the Ray-Ban stories. So RIP to Oculus.com. And this is kind of a long continuing trend of meta killing off the oculus brand it ever since connect in october mark zuckerberg announced obviously the company facebook had been rebranded to meta and then the cto andrew bosworth announced after the show very strangely you know they didn't say it during that entire presentation it was in a facebook post after the show obviously because they knew it would attract backlash, that the Oculus brand was being retired, that they were going to change Oculus Quest to MetaQuest. And in November, we saw the promotional material switch over from MetaQuest, sorry, from Oculus Quest to MetaQuest 2. Then we saw the Oculus.com website. In the top, the logo was changed from Oculus to MetaQuest, but it was still Oculus.com. In January, the social media channels, the Twitter, the Facebook, etc., changed from Oculus to MetaQuest, which, which obviously, as everyone knows, drove huge criticism, widespread criticism. It actually started trending on Twitter as people were saying, you know, this is one of the dumbest rebrands ever, which a lot of people still hold the view of. And I, I'm very sympathetic to that view. It does seem like a, a very pointless rebrand. And then in February, we saw the first indication that the, the hardware itself would have the little Oculus logo at the front switched over to Meta Quest. And that we saw the Meta logo on the Super Bowl advertisement, the Quests there. And people kind of suspected, does that mean they're about to switch over the Quest packaging and the headset itself to show the Meta logo? And the answer was yes. In March, the packaging started to change and that if you get a brand new box for a Quest 2, it will say Meta Quest 2 on the front and the logo on the front will be meta and then obviously in march also the logo that shows when you boot up the headset that old oculus that's been around since the oculus go days has also switched to that strange kind of droopy infinity sign meta logo so this is just another step in the slow continuous killing off of the oculus brand and as of now the oculus brand really only exists as the 
app that you use, the required smartphone app that controls and powers the Quest, and in the sense of um, you know you you set it up and you use it to purchase games if you want, and you can use it to cast. And it also exists as the SDK. All of the developer SDKs for developing for Quest, all the core SDKs are still called Oculus. And for kind of technical reasons, it would probably be a nightmare to switch those over. So I imagine it will probably be the very last thing to go. But I suspect the next thing is going to be that app. We'll probably see the Oculus app at some point get changed to be called the MetaQuest app. I'm seeing a comment here from Tyler uh, with a donation. Thank you so much for the donation, Tyler. And the question from Tyler is a very big one. Do you think the consumer VR industry could be considered healthy when the fact that it is essentially held up by one corporation, e.g. imagine what happens if Meta completely pulled out of consumer? This has been, I think, on the minds of a lot of the movers and shakers in this industry, the people who are actually uh, investing in various ideas have been discussing Facebook's dominance since day one. And there have been, you know, discussions, I think, at various points of just, you know, how how does one compete with Facebook, but also just how does one not kill off VR entirely? Because there was this this belief that if Facebook abandoned VR, it goes back to kind of the status it was in the 90s as kind of a research tool, a tool that just exists in some research labs and is a very, very niche piece of hardware. And I don't know if that's the case, if, if that would have happened. If, if Facebook had decided after, I don't know, Oculus Go that there wasn't a need to ship a quest would no one have taken up the mantle of producing something like a quest that costs even five or six hundred dollars did you think it would have gone into kind of like a dark ages there heaney if that hadn't happened no i don't think it needs to be this dichotomy between where either have the current growth or it just doesn't exist at all it just would have happened a lot slower what meta you know formerly Facebook is doing in this space is what Tesla did to the electric car space. They're accelerating its existence. They're accelerating its growth. They're making it a thing by pumping in kind of innovation and research and development money a lot sooner than it would have been if it was left to the legacy corporations that, you know, these days very rarely like to actually enter new product spaces. A company would much rather just find a new feature for a smartphone or a new kind of app then really try to push an entirely new platform an entirely new medium of technology and mark zuckerberg in 2014 with that acquisition of oculus the you know between two and three billion depending on how you calculate it decided that he wanted to take the initiative and make what he saw as an inevitable technology happen much sooner and obviously from his own selfish perspective make him the person and his company the company that is behind the initial success but if Meta completely, you know, to get back to the question that was asked, if Meta completely pulled out today, the industry would obviously be significantly affected in that Quest 2 is right now the majority of hardware sales and the majority of software sales, but it wouldn't stop PlayStation VR 2 from launching and it wouldn't stop Apple's headset from launching and it wouldn't stop, it probably wouldn't stop Google's 2024 rumored headset from launching either. These companies are starting to catch up because of what Quest did and I think that Quest 2 kind of has proved out this market and this momentum enough that we're now at the point where even if Meta were to disappear off the face of the planet and all the quests were retired, that would still have that momentum that it built up 
would be picked up by other companies. I don't think I would have said the same thing in 2018. I don't think in 2017, I think there would have been maybe a potential for maybe a two or three or four year kind of mini dark age until the other companies took up the gauntlet. But I think we're now at the point where this horse is bolted. The train has already left the station. Nothing can stop this now, not even one company. Although that said, the market is, to really get back to the original question, no, the market is not healthy with just one company having so much control over it. And that's why it is so good that other companies are entering the space in the coming years. And one of the things that we've said on this show many times, and I really would like our viewers to understand, is that we are still in the early, early days of the VR market. We are nowhere near the end. This is arguably the end of the beginning. That's if, even if the end of the beginning. We may not even be at the end of the beginning yet. This has only just started. It's like personal computers in the early 90s. It would be like talking about, oh, well, if IBM pulls out, does the whole thing fall apart? No, because there's going to be companies that we haven't even thought of yet. They're going to enter this space. There may be massive changes in market share over the next decade. And as the technology kind of changes from this very basic off-the-shelf system that is basically just a modified smartphone with some fancy lenses to technologies that are actually developed from the ground up. We're going to see the hardware dramatically change as developers start to learn how to build for VR rather than just kind of parroting ideas from old systems and old platforms into VR. We're going to see the software dramatically change. And in that kind of open space, we're going to see the companies that own the hardware and the platforms change as user demand is really understood and people find out what do people really like to use these devices for for hours and hours on end and Mm. so even though the market isn't healthy today i think it's on a momentum where it will become healthy no matter what happens now Mm, very very interesting way of framing it there heaney what we were talking about earlier of just the different companies that might still enter this space i'm seeing people talk about sort of the false start that was google cardboard and that's a tough one to always talk about because Google Cardboard did introduce so many people to VR, but it was not great VR, right? It was the most simplistic form uh, of looking around inside of a flat or even 3D 360 video. And it could make you sick, especially if you leaned around or, or decided to stand up while inside that experience. The thing that we still don't know, enough time hasn't passed for us to get out the true story of some of these things. But we don't really know what happened with Clay, the head of VR and AR at Google, and how exactly the decision got made to stop after the Mirage Solo. So they partnered with Lenovo on a standalone. They even had a kit that you could attach controllers to this Mirage Solo and have track controllers. It was an Oculus Quest before the Oculus Quest was actually out there. And Google just walked away from the entire effort. And we still don't know. We still don't have enough time passing, enough people coming to us and telling us what happened to really tell us, did Google just get scared of what Meta was doing? And can that history repeat itself with PSVR 2 and Apple and all the other competitors that are still to launch against them? So there was actually, you know, we say we, we don't know, but there actually was a very detailed report in the information about this, which suggested that what happened was that Google obviously had this AR and VR division as one team that worked on this VR product and also their uh, AR core mobile product. 
And what apparently happened was Google got very concerned with Apple's progress in mobile AR with ARKit. Apple came out kind of gunning and took over Google's long-term research momentum, which it had with Project Tango, which was that kind of custom Android developer kit phone you could get. It was like a phablet. It was a pretty huge phone that had a depth sensor on it. And you could really do mobile AR years before the current iteration of mobile phone AR we see today. And then Apple came out and did this in software. They published every kind of recent iPhone and every iPad AR kit where people could create these AR experiences. And there was a huge, huge hype around this and an almost rush from these platform developers to say, this is the next big thing. I was always very skeptical of it. I think you were too. I think in general, we at Upload were skeptical of this idea that viewing AR through this tiny little rectangle in your hand was really something that was appealing. But from this information report, Google was so scared of Apple making so much progress in this space and making mobile AR something that only existed on iPhone that they assigned their priorities to AR core. They said to the people who were working on the likes of this, the Mirage Solo, no, no, your priority right now is to get a competing product out to what Apple have put out here. And then we get AR core starts to get its functionality. We see Android phones, Pixel phones, and the, the major Samsung phones start to get this AR core functionality. And then simultaneously, as this would as this happened, again, apparently, according to this report from the information, Meta's recruiters and perhaps Meta's executives realized, hang on here, there are a lot of people in this Google AR VR division who really want to work on actual headsets like this, but their bosses are telling them they have to work on smartphone AR. So why don't we just hire them and tell them you can come here and build the Oculus Quest and build the next Oculus Quest and build this entire platform. And reportedly, that's exactly what they did. And there was mm -hmm. this bleed from 2018 to 2020 of Google's top AR talent off to Meta. Meta hired them one by one, took the people who didn't want to work on some kind of from their perspective, and I would agree, dead-end mobile AR technology to work on real headsets. And Google, instead of realizing that it should have worked on this and should have really gone full guns in on a Quest competitor, they picked their own path. And then according to that Verge report from a month or two ago, I think it was last month, it may have been the month before, Google has now kind of gone full circle in that they've started up their own headset project again to build something that's going to be like Cambria and Lynx, a, a mixed reality pass-through headset, which is ironically what they already had a lot of the seeds for in 2018. And had they just stuck with that and kept that talent and let them work on what they wanted to work on, reportedly, then <laughs> they could have been a Quest competitor today. The Daydream could have lived on. It could have been the open or at least more open competitor to Quest. But Google chose smartphone AR over headsets. So I, I get it. You're right that there is, we do know that level of detail, but there has to be a set of emails from like a vice president to the CEO and those types of people. And they looked at the amount of investment that Facebook was throwing at this space and then charted out how many years into the future they would need to invest in order to catch up to what Meta was ready or Facebook was ready to ship like the very following year. And they had to be, you know, too scared. There was a human decision at the core of a Google making a move there. And at some point, we need to know who was the human that made that decision and do they regret it five, 10 years from now, right? Like, that's what I want to understand. When they look back and, and realize, was it like a mistake of just realizing they didn't want to be 
like the head of a division that's going to lose $10 billion a year for the next decade? That like was that was that what they were afraid of? I, I don't know. It's just that's the type of thing we still need to understand at some point. I think that could be a huge potential factor here because one of the things we always point out in this show is that what makes Meta very different from a company like Google or a company like Microsoft is that when you're at Google, you're working within this kind of very structured managerial system, even at the top, where even the CEO of Alphabet is reporting to a board of directors who is acting on behalf of the shareholders. And it's a lot easier within that system to sell to your other executives the idea of something that is that is very concrete and short-term that exists, you know, take what we have on smartphones a day and add AR on top of them, then this very risky, very risky long-term ambition that's going to, as you say, require putting tens of billions of dollars into research and into content and into subsidizing hardware to build for a market that a lot of those executives may not have believed in back then. I'd say a lot more of them probably believe in it now with the success of Quest 2, but it would have been a lot harder to pitch it. But what makes Meta unique in that sense is that Meta is owned and controlled by one person, Mark Zuckerberg. He has a controlling stake. He is the majority shareholder. His, the, the shareholder that he has this fiduciary responsibility to is himself. He is the chairman the CEO, and the majority shareholder. So he's able to say, you know what? I am going to, as a single person, make this incredibly risky bet of pumping tens of billions of dollars into R&D on this project that may or may not pan out. And even today, we've heard recent reports that a lot of people at Meta and a lot of their shareholders are still skeptical of this because it may not pan out. So if you, th- so if even he with the, with full control over his company and being the chairman and CEO is seeing skepticism from within, how do you think it would have been for someone in a, in a kind of traditional managerial executive system mm-hmm. like Google to pitch that? And as you say, they probably just were more, far more able to pitch something that's in the short term than something like this. Yeah, the visual positioning systems that we see c- catching on, right? Like the idea that you can take GPS to the next level of accuracy with visual positioning aiding the GPS and that kind of being this avenue towards a lot of killer features down the line, right? When you can actually have a pet or a Pokemon hiding behind the trees in your yard or along your walk, those are the types of things that are going to be possible when these platforms like Google and Niantic and Apple have a very smart representation of the physical world and google kind of skipped ahead to trying to provide that software layer it's just such a you know i i stood there with john carmack at one of the oculus connects and asked him about whether they were investing in mobile positional tracking right and he says something to the effect of, it does not look good for doing mobile positional tracking that doesn't consume a whole lot of power. I wish I had someone spending the whole last year on it. That comment from Carmack at the time that he gave it to me, back before all this stuff existed, pointed out that there was a different version of history where this technology could have been developed a little bit sooner than it had. And here we have actual evidence that Google had developed this technology all on its own. And it's just, for various reasons, never never got out to market. And it's we're going to have you know this unhealthy version of the market where one company controls everything for at least the near future. 
Yeah, it is such a shame that Daydream was sunsetted because it really was, it really seemed like it could have been the Android to Facebook's Apple in obviously in, in the sense of the approach that they were taking. And we could have had this, you know, this was an Lenovo device. There could have been other makers that came in and made their devices. Anyone who kind of came up with a standalone headset. Today, if you want to make a standalone headset, you have to build your own operating system. We're talking about well, not operating system. You have to build your own platform on top of the core Android operating system. As we were talking about last week, Pico has had to do that. They're spending a significant investment into kind of building this consumer platform and having this store and investing in content. But that's because they are owned by another social media giant, ByteDance. So independent hardware makers or just companies who are hardware first still do not have an operating system that they could just put on their headset, an operating system plus platform plus consumer store and all that that would just be ready to go. And as we talked about a few months ago in this show, it sounds like Microsoft may actually be looking to be that missing link there. And it looks like their long-term strategy could be that they want to be the operating system so that when someone like LG or Samsung or you know just any of the companies that might make your television today can make a piece of hardware, make a standalone headset and have that OS run on it. It could be Microsoft's, but it'll be interesting to see how that really pans out or if Google continues its role in Android and kind of revives the daydream dream. Mm. I think that's where we're going to close out for this week. On that note that Heen is sort of leaving it on, we do have a number of developer conferences that are coming up throughout the year. The issue that we kind of have to expect there is the supply chain problems causing issues for basically every major manufacturer. In other words, this is the year when a lot of companies out there should be launching their developer platforms for VR and AR in whatever form it is. But they may not be able to get the hardware out to match it on the same timeline as their software. And so it will be really interesting to see what sort of shape and details we get out of these developer conferences coming up in the months ahead. And we're going to have all the coverage of those conferences and all the details here on UploadVR.com. Thank you so much for our live commenters. Really great discussion today on a lot of very diverse subjects here, covering a lot of what's going on in VR and AR. Obviously, come back to the Gamescast on Thursdays with Jamie and Harry getting into all the game news out there. And we'll be back on Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific to record this podcast live in virtual reality. Thank you so much, David Heaney, for coming across the ocean and building the studio for us. We'll see you next week.